Scripture for us and bring us God's Word. Good morning. It's great to be here with you all, and uh, I'm so appreciative of Blake for inviting me. Uh, Blake's become a good friend. Uh, if you missed his introduction, I'm pretty new to Tulsa, but not to Oklahoma. I was pastoring a church in Stillwater, and that church met in a gym much like this church. In fact, it still does. It's been almost 10 years and been meeting in a gym. And I'm sure you guys get the same question that a lot of us got, which, which I got all the time in Stillwater when I meet somebody new and they'd find out about the church. And so they'd ask, when are you gonna get, when are you gonna get a church? You know, which meant, of course, what? When are you gonna get a, a building of your own? And I, I'd always say, we have a church. We have a church. Our church meets at a school, you know, and we hope to get a building one day, but uh, in the Lord's plans. Anyway, it is good to be here, and uh, I'm gonna start off with a question. How many of you have seen the movie Batman Begins? Batman Begins, so quite a few of you. In the movie Batman Begins, there is a group of secret operatives who uh, Bruce Wayne gets involved with and they train him. And the group is called the League of Shadows. And uh, they're led by a man named Ra's al Ghul. And their purpose, at least in the plot of the movie, is to destroy Gotham City. Now, they're different from a lot of movie villains in that most movie villains, they want to destroy the world, take over the world for greed or power, but the League of Shadows actually sees themselves as the good guys, right? They actually see themselves as doing a service for the world in destroying Gotham City. Ra's al Ghul, at one point in the movie, he tells Bruce Wayne, he says, like Constantinople or Rome before it, the city has become a breeding ground for suffering and injustice. It is beyond saving and must be allowed to die. Gotham must be destroyed. Well, of course, Bruce comes to disagree with that, and he goes on to become Batman, right? And he begins to spend his life fighting on behalf of the city to protect it and to renew it. And he sacrifices himself in many ways in order to do that. And I think this movie actually asks us a very good question. And the question is, how much do you value your city? How much do you value the place where you live? Are you like Batman in wanting to serve your city, in seeing hope in it, even as broken in places as it might be? Or are you like the League of Shadows in condemning it as soon as it doesn't live up to what your expectations might be? Well, I think Christians in America have too often just seen their cities as a temporary stopping point on a larger individual faith journey. 
Right? We, we've seen the places where we've lived as, as just places that exist to serve us and help us get a little further and a little closer to heaven. Rather than, as what I think the Bible tells us about our cities is that they are a place that God loves and he has put us in our place, put his people in place to love their neighbors and their neighborhoods and communities. But in order to serve something, we really need to see value in it. And so I want us to see today that the city is a place to be treasured and cultivated and loved, not deserted and left to die. In fact, I think what we're gonna see in this passage in Jeremiah 29 is that God shows his heart for the world and for local communities as well. So if you have that, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, I'm gonna start with verse one and then jump to verse four. Let's stand for this reading of God's word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then down to verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I don't know about you, how you grew up, but one of the ways that I grew up and one of the beliefs that I inherited was that this idea of creation care, of environmentalism, was really much ado about nothing. It sounded nice, but I thought, you know, really, this world is just gonna be destroyed, and so why, why take care of it? That's, that's a little like polishing the brass on the Titanic. I, I actually heard that in a sermon. To take care of the world is to, to polish the brass. But Paul says in Romans 8, I'll never forget really reading this and really getting this for the first time. Paul says this about creation. He says that creation, the created world, is waiting to be set free from its bondage to decay and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's waiting to be set free, to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. That means that just like we, in the next life, we are going to be redeemed by God. We are gonna be given new bodies. Just like Jesus got a new glorified body, Paul is saying that Creation is as well. That this created world is going to be renewed and set free like we are. Well, that changed everything for me. 
And I began to read the Bible differently and began to go back and, and look at Genesis 1. I began to see that the whole narrative of the Bible bears that out. It's very pro-creation. Genesis 1, God created the physical world, didn't he? And what did he say about it? He said, it is good. It is good. And later in chapter 1, God creates humans and he gives them a command. You remember the first commandment given to Adam and Eve? He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now, what does that mean? That means that God wanted us, starting with Adam and Eve, but us to take care of the world, to fill it with his image. And he says, subdue it and have dominion over it. And some people have thought, well, that means we can dominate and do whatever we want. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that we are to help it be fruitful, right? Be fruitful and multiply. We are, God gave us the earth to be stewards of it, to take care of it, to help it flourish everywhere, to spread out all over it, to fill the earth and to enjoy it. And then in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see the consummation of that story when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and God makes his dwelling place, where? On earth, in a redeemed, renewed creation. See, God had a plan for his creation and nothing has changed that plan, right? He's not going to destroy the good things that he has made here. Now the new heavens and the new earth is gonna look different than this world. There will be no sin, but it will also look in some ways very much the same. Jesus says in Revelation, what does he say? He says, behold, I'm making all things new. But he does not say I am making all new things, does he? I'm making all things new. I'm redeeming them, renewing them to what I originally made them to be. See, there is much evil in this world, but the world is not evil. The created world was not created evil. It was made good. And so God cares about it. This is my Father's world. He cares about cities. He cares about culture. He cares about people, right? And this passage in Jeremiah 29 calls you to me and me to care for our communities, where we live. I want to have two points this morning to talk about. The first point is this. God wants us to serve the people around us. And the second point is that God wants us to invest in the welfare of our communities, okay? So first point is God wants us to serve the people around us. Now, to get this a little better, we need to go a little bit deeper into the background of this passage in Jeremiah 29, right? We don't want to take it out of context. The context here is it is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah, the really from God, but God, but God gives it to Jeremiah to give to, to the Israelites living in exile. Now, what does that mean in exile? Okay, so this is the, the Jewish nation, the Israelite nation, and they had come to prominence in the Old Testament. 
you read your Old Testament history, under King David and Solomon, they had become a strong nation after they had come into the promised land. They had built this great temple in Jerusalem and really reached a great height under David. But then beginning with Solomon and after him, if you, as you read the Old Testament, you see the kings that came after them became increasingly worse and worse and drew the people away from God. They began to worship uh, false gods and the nation began to decline in every way, spiritually, morally. And so God in his wisdom and in his mercy, he decided that he was going to discipline the nation. And the way that he disciplined them was by sending this rival army, this rival nation, Babylon, to come. And they came and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and they took many of the people out of Israel and brought them to Babylon into what we know as exile. Now this wasn't exactly slavery. It may have been a little bit more like cultural reassignment. Okay? The idea was to get them out of their culture and in, into Babylonian culture. Right? And so here are these people. They're living in this foreign place. Right? And it, 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 very little makes sense to them. Everything is different from what they've known. And so they really have a choice. Right? They could choose to see the Babylonians as their enemies, in which in some ways that they, they were, and to fight against everything Babylonian, everything about their culture, right? But Jeremiah here tells them not to. He tells them, don't engage in a culture war. Okay, now, now certainly, he's not saying, you know, become all things Babylonian, Right, Because be, the Babylonians were pagans. They worshiped false gods. They did not know the one true God, Yahweh. And they had many practices that someone who believes in the one true God could not follow. And you, you read a book like Daniel in the Old Testament, you see a picture of faithful Israelites right, being true to Yahweh, sort of fighting to, to maintain the faith. But given that... Jeremiah tells them to do much more than just survive in this place, right? He tells them not just to get along, but to actually invest in Babylon. Invest in this foreign place where they find themselves. And he tells them to put roots down in the city, at least for a time. There are 10 different verbs in this passage. Ten things that God calls his people to do. Let's look at a few of them in verses five and six, if you still have your Bible open. If not, that's okay, I'll just read them. It says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now that takes a little bit of time, right? I'm not a gardener, but planting a garden and eating the produce, that takes a little bit of time to do, right? Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Multiply there. That's interesting. That kind of sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In some ways, this is an echo of that. But all these things God is telling them to do to invest in the place where you are. Build houses, gardens, 
Produce families. Live in abundance. Don't decrease. Increase here. And by doing these things, they are investing in the good of their community and in the good of their enemies. It's interesting. It's, it was Jesus who said, love your enemy. But it was also Jesus who said, what? Love your neighbor. Sometimes that's the same person, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes it's the same person. That's the way it was for these Israelites living in Babylon. They had to learn to love their neighbors. And the way that God wanted the Israelites to love their neighbors was to invest in their community, to build it up, to help it flourish, to raise their children there and to make a home there. Now, I really believe that we have lost the art of neighboring in modern America. We, we don't really know how to relate to the people around us, right? So many of us, even as Christians, we drive 20 minutes to go to church or to community group, right? Which is not bad in and of itself, I'm not saying that, but we drive past so many people and people that we don't even stop to give the time of day to at all. The people who live right around us are literal next-door neighbors. We have just moved, my family and I, just this summer, we moved into a a neighborhood in South Tulsa. And and we were able to meet all of our neighbors right around us, the two houses on either side of us and the three houses right across the street. And, And we've gotten to know some of them uh, they've been great. One, one neighbor uh, lets us use their pool whenever they want to. Other neighbor, Jerry, uh, installed our new dishwasher, which was fantastic. And, and they have been such a blessing to us. I don't know if we've blessed them yet, but I, I hope we will at some point. What was really interesting was my wife was talking to a neighbor across the street, Mary. And, and Mary said, you know, I, I saw the people who lived in your house before you. But I never, never met them. And they lived there three and a half years. Right across the street, never met. My guess is that this is not shocking to you, right? This, this happens all the time, doesn't it? So many people, so many of us, have turned our houses into little fortresses, right? With our own theater systems, right? And we come home from work and school, and we open the garage just enough, long enough to get in there and close it. Us four, no more, shut the door, right? We're sort of afraid of our neighbors sometimes. And it's hard being a neighbor because they see everything about you. But I really believe that God wants us to repent of this, of this way of living life, That as Christians, we really ought to be the best neighbors. We ought to know our neighbors. We ought to have them into our homes, right? And here's the thing. I think it is not just enough just to know our neighbors' names and even have them over. We actually have to seek their welfare. As Jesus said, what does he say? He says, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Have you ever thought about how crazy that is? Because 
know about you, but I love myself a lot. <laughs> I am constantly thinking about my welfare, how to further my own welfare. Jesus says, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And he has a lot of things to say about who is your neighbor, right? Your neighbor is all kinds of people, but I'm pretty sure he also met the person living right next door to you. And down the street from you is your neighbor. We're supposed to love them like we love ourselves. And something very interesting. Um, There is this document, Confession of Faith. I'm glad we did that uh, Confession of Faith just a few minutes ago. It was great. But there's one that, that Presbyterians have used for centuries. If you're new to a Presbyterian church, it's fine you don't know this. Uh, it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's a great document about what faith is. And, and it has a shorter catechism and a larger catechism that are written in question-answer form, and uh, they're, they're helpful for learning about the faith. And in seminary, I had to learn the shorter catechism. I had to actually memorize it. And I thought, oh, this is gonna be a drudgery. But I actually found it really interesting. In fact, the, the most interesting part to me was the section on the Ten Commandments. And I'll tell you why. Section on the Ten Commandments uh, has this presupposition, this, this guiding principle in it that for every commandment that is stated, the opposite action is also forbidden. So for every positive, the negative action is also implied. And, and then for the, every negative commandment, like the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. The positive opposite of that is also implied to be commanded. So not only are we not to have other gods for God, we are also to worship God alone, worship him first. And so that plays out in the fifth commandment, right? We have a positive command, honor your father and mother, but the negative of that is also implied. Don't disobey your parents and anyone in authority over you. When we come to the eighth commandment, I think this is really fascinating. Because what is the Eighth Commandment? Anybody know? You shall not steal. Right? There's a negative there. So you are not to go to your neighbor's house, take things out of their garage without their permission, right? Do not steal. But then the, the confession, the catechism asks this, says what is required in the Eighth Commandment? It's a great answer. The Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and the outward estate of ourselves and others. Isn't that interesting? It requires us to further the outward estate, the procuring of wealth for our neighbors. So what it's saying is, not only am I not to go and steal things out of my neighbor's garage, I'm supposed to help them get stuff in their garage. I'm supposed to help them prosper and become wealthy, in essence. Isn't that interesting? It brings up fascinating questions. When other people do well, are you happy for them? Or are you jealous? When your neighbor gets a brand new car and you've been driving the same clunker, can you rejoice with them? Really, because that is the start, I think, of gospel neighboring. It begins 
with your heart and wanting to see your neighbors, no matter who they are, prosper. It starts in the heart and then it works itself out in a life of service. I'll give you one more quick example. Uh, Jason Bobo is a new, uh, also a new pastor, just moved to, to Tulsa about a month after I did. And soon after he moved, um, within a day I think, his kids found out that there were some kids about their same age living next door and they, they all had those Nerf guns, right, that shoot the Nerf pellets. And so for about a week, the Bobo kids and the kids next door just ran all around the neighborhood shooting their Nerf guns at each other. And after about a week, they went to play again and the, the boy next door came over and, and he was really angry. And he said, my mom's angry too because he had about 20 of those Nerf pellets and he was down to about 10, right? They're in trees or bushes or wherever. And so he had lost them. So he was mad. Now, the Bobo children, <laughs> what maybe he didn't know or didn't take into account, the Bobo children had like a hundred of these pellets, and we're down to like 20 as well. But Jason, instead of saying, well, justice, you know, we lost his... What did he do? Went to Walmart. He bought 200 nude pellets and just divided them up between all the kids. Gospel neighboring. God wants us to, to serve our neighbors. But the second thing is God wants us to invest in the welfare of our city. Verse 7 here in this passage is a great verse. It says, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, that word that keeps getting used, welfare or well-being, depending on your translation, is the Hebrew word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's a traditional greeting uh, between Jewish people, shalom, and it means, it's translated peace. But the, the, this word is really much bigger than what maybe we think about as peace, this, you know, a nice feeling or a lack of conflict between people. The idea of shalom in the Bible is whole life flourishing, it is this idea that every part of your life works in harmony and it is working the way it was created to work. And God says to seek the shalom of the city, the shalom of the place where you live, the well-being, so that every part of it works. And then he says that, that really fascinating part. For in its shalom you will find your shalom. He's telling them that in Babylon's welfare, their shalom, that they will find their welfare, their well-being. Their success is tied to the success of Babylon itself. And you may think, well, how is that possible? Right? How is that? I mean, that my success is tied to the place where I live. Well, I mean, isn't, can I flourish in a bad place? Can't good people flourish in bad places, right? Whatever happened to though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God is with me. Well, that is true, right? God can get us through the hardest and the darkest of circumstances, right? And, and we can be content in all circumstances 
But it's also true that place matters. Place matters. Let me give you an example. Your children do not die of malaria because they live in the United States of America, right? Where we have access to good health care. Consider this, though. In 2012, in the Republic of the Congo, a nation in Africa, there were 69,000 deaths by malaria. 69,000 deaths. Now, what's interesting to me is not necessarily comparing the Congo to, uh, to America, but comparing it to a nation right next to it, Rwanda. The same year, 2012, there were 3,800 deaths by malaria in Rwanda. Less, fewer than 20 times. I didn't say that right, did I? 20 times fewer than in the Congo. And they're right next door to each other. Why? I can only surmise. Better government, better health care. Place matters. If you grew up in the United States, if you grew up in Oklahoma, you probably had some kind of family, some kind of home, some kind of school to go to. But if you had grown up in India or the Philippines, there is a decent chance that you might have grown up as millions of street children do, with no home, with no access to education. Place matters, and in its welfare, you will find your welfare. But you know what? I think this is not just a matter of consequence, right? That if your place is good, your life is probably going to be good. I think this is also a matter here of commitment. That God is actually calling these Israelites and calling us today to tie our well-being in with that of the place where we live. It is a, a question of commitment to the place and to our neighbors and neighborhoods. And Jesus Christ is actually the supreme example of this, isn't he? Because Jesus left his neighborhood. He left the greatest place you could ever live. He left the throne room of heaven. And he came to earth to become one of us, to tie in himself, to tie his welfare with our welfare, right? to become one of us, even when we had become evil and had hated him. And he served us to the point of dying, to the point of death. But when he rose again, he said he did that to bring life to us. And he brings new life and a new opportunity to have shalom in this world. So what would it look like for us to depend on the place we live for our well-being? How do we do practical gospel neighboring? Well, there are big things that we can do and there are small things that we can do, big ways and little ways, some, some big things that I've thought of. And there are a thousand of these, right? But, but volunteering in the local public school, even if your kids don't go to that school, I have a good friend in, in Oklahoma City, 
Julie Servan, she's the wife of a pastor there. And they live in a neighborhood that has a school that doesn't have a lot of resources. And even though their kids go to a, a private school, Julie goes to that school and she volunteers. She says, what do you need? What can I do? And she goes and she mobilizes a whole group from their church to do work days. And they love her. Support local businesses. Support local artists and musicians who are doing good work in your community. And here's the thing, even if they're not Christians, if they're doing good work, we can support them. And that is a vital part, I think, of the welfare, the shalom of a place. Here's another one. Get involved in local elections and policy decisions. But with this caveat, do that not just to protect your own interests, right? But the interests of everyone in the city. So that everyone, even in the poor neighborhoods, their interests are represented. They're big things and they're small things. Small things like flushing toilets, turning off sinks in public restrooms, right? mowing your yard, even though even if you don't really care about your yard, your neighbors probably do. Mowing your neighbor's yard if they go out of town. Right? Gospel neighboring is thinking of ways to seek the welfare of those around us. Now let me answer a quick objection. It probably sounds something like this. I don't know if you're thinking this, but at some point in my life, I would have thought this. I would have said, Pastor, I see what you're doing here. <laughs> this is just kind of bait and switch evangelism, isn't it? This sounds like door-to-door salesman evangelism. Get to know them and then trick them with the gospel, right? Well, okay, I'm gonna say this is, in some ways, evangelism, but this is not the kind of evangelism, the monologue evangelism of just trying to get someone to say a prayer that I grew up with. This is actually a much bigger picture of what God is doing in the world, of how he is redeeming all things, right? And I guarantee you that if you consistently demonstrate that you care about the welfare of your neighbors, not about just their souls or their sin, right? But about every part of their lives and about your neighborhood, I guarantee that, that people will begin to listen to you. Right? Love them as if they went to your church and maybe someday they will, right? And now some of you may also be thinking, well, is this enough? Right? Is this enough just to do good things for my neighbor? Right? And some of you, if, if you're honest, you know this probably is not going to happen with my neighbors, right? I never see my neighbors. They only come out to get the paper and put their trash out, maybe to fix the sprinklers. Listen, I know you can't force people around you to be neighborly but you can seek their welfare, even if it's just to pray for them, right? Even if it's just to represent their interests at the HOA meeting or the town hall meeting. And is enough just to do good to a neighbor? My answer would probably be yes and no, right? It depends on your opportunity. Again, some people, you're not gonna get much past maybe getting their name and saying hi. 
But others, you may get to know them. And they may get to the place where they ask you, why are you so kind to me? Why do you do so much for this community? And you can tell them about how Jesus has loved you and served you. There was a great example of this that was in national news just recently. Uh, I don't know if you thought about this, but LeBron James, those of you who are sports fans, you probably know this story, right? LeBron James grew up in Northeast Ohio, this teen phenomenon, and he skipped college, he went straight from high school to the NBA, and he was drafted by his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. He played a number of years there, but then he left town to go to Miami, right? He won a couple of NBA championships with Miami. Just a few months ago, decided that he was gonna go back to Cleveland. And he wrote an open letter uh, on, the, on Sports Illustrated's website, and it said this, He says, I feel my calling here goes above basketball. I have a responsibility to lead in more ways than one, and I take that very seriously. My presence can make a difference in Miami, but I think it can mean more where I'm from. I want kids in Northeast Ohio, like the hundreds of Akron third graders I sponsored through my foundation, to realize that there's no better place to grow up. Maybe some of them will come home after college and start a family or open a business. That would make me smile. Our community, which has struggled so much, needs all the talent it can get. You know, I don't know if that's just PR for him or not, but it it sounds authentic, and it at least helps us to see how we can think about the community that we're in. I think I became a LeBron James fan (laughs) with that letter. And it's interesting, Bloomberg's financial group, they estimate that his coming back there is going to have a $500 million impact in Northeast Ohio. Now, certainly as Christians, we should think more than just about economics. But we certainly shouldn't think less. God cares about all of life. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this community of faith. I thank you for these believers who've thrown in their lot with one another to try to be a city on a hill, to try to be a light in the world together. I pray for them as they seek to be salt and light in Owasso and in Tulsa, surrounding areas. I pray that, Father, that you would help us to see how we can love and serve our neighbors, to get beyond living life just for the accumulation of our own goods and our own deeds, to truly serve as you have served us in Jesus. Thank you for that grace and that hope that all things we have, we already have in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.